turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, not Genesis chapter 1. What are you talking about? Genesis, the first book of the Bible is what was going in my head. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Chapter 47, verse 1. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, this day. We thank you for uh, days that can that that are uh, are, are so beautiful and uh, with the blue skies and uh, warm weather and and that just shout your goodness. Lord, we pray that that we don't we don't let anything convince us otherwise. That when we have Stormy days, or or even uh, stormy days in our life, uh, we we pray that we don't uh, forget that you're uh, you're you're in control, and that, that sometimes you send the rain and and the troubles to to guide and direct us and to turn us and to mold us and shape us into who you would have us be. Lord, as we look to uh, these con- these concluding stories of of Joseph, we and we finally get to see this this coming into into its full realities, uh, your your presence and your in your your plans. Lord, we thank you most of all for your Son Jesus. We thank you that He came to this earth and He suffered and died. And that He is not a distant uh, a distant Savior, but He's a near Savior, one who who went through the trials that we go through, one who endured the temptations that we that we. Our encounter. We thank you that we can turn to him as uh, as a friend, as as one who uh, as one who is compassionate to us and understands us. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for your Spirit, for a Spirit that is going to speak uh, to us this morning. We ask that our hearts and our our minds would be uh, open to be taught and directed. Uh, through your spirit. It's in your precious and holy son, Jesus' name. Amen. Like I said, Genesis chapter 47. In the first verse, we'll kind of take this in a few different chunks, but Genesis chapter 47, verse 1. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is is your occupation? And, And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. And they said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if... If you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. 
And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the lives of my fathers in the day, days of their sojourn. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them possession in the land of Egypt and the best of the land in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to to the number of their descendants. And we'll stop there and we'll pick back up in a minute, but we'll catch our bearings. At this point, we have been traveling through the book of Genesis off and on um, for about three years, I think, when we started Genesis chapter one. Uh, but when we picked up the story of Abraham or Abram at that particular point, uh, that was about two years ago. So if we, We've got to think back all the way to Abraham. Abraham was called or, or was, was told of his blessing. He's, he's called by God from his land of his father to go to this land of Canaan, this, this land that I will show you, I will bless you, I will, I will give, you, give you the land as a, as a permanent inheritance for all generations to come. You will have many descendants, and through your descendants the world will be blessed. This is the promise that's given to Abraham. Abraham, or Abram at that time, was 75 years old when he receives the promise that he's going to have a child. 75. Sarah, we know, is 10 years younger because whenever Isaac is actually born, uh, Sarah is 90 and Abraham is 100. So Sarah is 65. 65 years old, even in today's culture, with modern medicine, all that we have, prenatal vitamins, bed rest, and all sorts of stuff is, is, is really quite an absurd time to have a child. I think there's actually one account of a, of a, of a woman who is 65 years old who had a child in, in modern times. And it's astonishing. Oh, man, she's the oldest woman to ever bear a child. Okay, 65. It's, it's crazy. God says, you're going to have a child through Sarah. 25 years go by before Isaac is born. Very little of that time... God shows himself, uh, very, very, very small amounts of times does God show himself to be a God to trust in those 25 years. He goes to Abraham and he says, Abram, you need to go, you need to leave everything that you know and go to a place that I will show you. And Abram does it. He says, trust me, you're going to have a child, but you're going to have to wait. And Abraham does so. Very few times does God show himself to be trustworthy in that period of time. He's placing trust. He's, he's saying, you must trust me before I show you anything. By the way, this is very unique. We today have lots and lots of stories of God showing himself to be trustworthy. But Abraham doesn't quite get that. He's kind of the beginning. He's the first person that has to show God, show, show God that he, he believes in his words. 25 years go by. And Abram finally has a child, Isaac, 25 years. Forty years later, Isaac marries Rebekah. Rebekah is uh, barren, and she can't have children. And 20 years later, God gives them two children, Jacob and Esau. So 
25 years to wait for Abram to have a child, 20 years for Isaac to wait. Uh, Isaac is 60 years old, so you got 25, 60. 85 years have gone by. And the family of Israel, the family of Abraham, excuse me, has grown from two people, uh, Abraham and Sarah, to five people, Abraham, Sarah, Jacob, or Isaac, and, or six people, excuse me, uh, Isaac and Rebecca and Jacob and Esau. Six people in 85 years. This is a big family, right? Everybody shake your head, no, it's not a big family. So Jacob is born, Isaac is 60, so 85 years have gone by since this promise has been given, and then 130 years pass. 130 years pass, Jacob is sent away by his father to, to go and find a wife. He finds Rachel, he really likes Rachel, he's tricked. He marries Leah, then he marries Rachel, then he marries Bilhah, and then he marries Zilpha, and then he has 12 sons. We finally start to see some growth in this time Abraham has died. So the family's about maybe 15 strong, 20 strong, somewhere in there. 130 years pass in Jacob's life, and he finally comes down to the land of Egypt. Rob picked up on something last week. He didn't really dwell on it because it's not really part of last week's text, but picked up on this idea that God has a very interesting way of doing things. Right? He goes to Abraham, he says, You're gonna be you're gonna be who I use. You're 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 seventy-five years old, your wife is sixty-five years old, and you're gonna have lots and lots of kids. That's absurd. We need to to recognize what God is saying here is really quite silly. And Abraham could have responded with with all logic and all reason and everything that has has ever taken place in the history of of the world. He could have said, no, this isn't going to happen. It's not what happens. People don't have kids whenever they're 100 years old. But that's what happens. A very unique and specific and special acting of God in the life of Abraham and Sarah. And while it's not quite as as serious, or it's not quite as magnificent, Isaac and Rebekah have kind of the same situation. 20 years, she's barren. She gets to the point where most women don't have kids anymore. 60, you know, she's about 60 years old. She's about the same age as, as, uh, as Isaac is. So it's kind of silly for her to have a child, but then she has a child. Now it's not, it's not Esau who's going who's gonna, to uh, pass the blessing on. It's not through the firstborn that the blessing is going to go through. It's going to go through Jacob. And so God sends Jacob away, does all this stuff to Jacob, gives him a new family, gives him a new, uh, a new amount of money in his pocket. Jacob leaves completely broke, even though he tricked and deceived his father into giving him the birthright. He leaves completely broke. And he comes back a very wealthy man with lots of children. God does things in a very unique and special way. Just so you know, the math is it's about 215 years go by between uh, Abraham receiving the promise that he's going to have lots of descendants and he's going to possess the land of Canaan and the time when when Jacob goes down to the land of Egypt. 215 years. He's gone from one man... To 70 men. Okay, so the family is a little bit bigger than 70 based on just the, the oddities of how the, the Hebrew people count people. 
There's 66 who come down with Jacob, not counting his son's wives. And then they meet up with, with Joseph, and there's the 70 men, Joseph and his two sons. So one man to 70 men in, 220, in 215 years. It's really poor growth. It's very slow growth. Basically in four generations. doesn't take very much to grow faster than that. 400 plus years from this particular point, the people of Israel will leave the land of, of Egypt in what's called the Exodus. And based on the numbers that we find in the book of Numbers, Matthew, or Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, in the book of Numbers, the purpose of the book of Numbers is to, is to count all the people and all the tribes and all this kind of stuff. And based on the numbers that we look at in, in, in the book of Numbers, the, the population of the people of Israel is about 2 million in about 11 generations. We go from 70 to 2 million in 11 generations. And what anthropologists will say, what people who, who study human civilization and how it grows and all this kind of stuff, they say, this is absurd. This is not, it's, it's way too big. Well, my, my argument is, you're not taking into account what the Bible says, what God is doing. Right? God doesn't work in normal, logical ways. He works in unique and special ways. And so God says, here's what I want you to do, Jacob. Here's what I want you to do, people of Israel. I'm going to send you into a foreign country. And that foreign country, they're, they're really they're not going to like foreigners. We saw this earlier whenever, whenever Joseph finally sees his brothers again. For the second time, he sees them again. He brings them back. And he says, okay, come into my house. We're going to have a meal. And we're told that the Egyptians, they eat them by themselves. And Joseph eats by himself. And the, and the 12 brothers eat by themselves because the Egyptians and the Hebrews can't eat together because it's an abomination to the Egyptians. Just so you know, it's racism. Racism is, has been something that's always existed. The Egyptians are like, we don't like you. You're, you're, you're unclean. The same kind of concept that we see in the, in the Old Testament law. People of Israel, if you touch a dead body, you become unclean. If you, if you have leprosy, you're unclean. It's, it's, it's this idea of we're going we're gonna to try to keep ourselves Safe. This, this unclean idea exists in every single ancient culture, including the Egyptians. They thought the Hebrew people, they were unclean, they're dirty, they're filthy. Most of the time because the interaction they have between them is after traveling. We don't like you. We don't, we're going to stay away from you. So God says to the people of Israel, he says, I'm going to bring you down to a foreign place where you won't possess any land. The people are going to hate you. And oh yeah, by the way, uh, your jobs... Your, your shepherds, right? This is the primary job of the, the, the Israelite boys, the Israelite men. They're mostly shepherds. Uh, that's going to also be an abomination to the Egyptians. In fact, it's actually an abomination to almost every culture in the ancient world. Shepherds were weird. It's just that simple. I've said this before. The shepherds are odd. They're, 95% of their lives is spent out in the middle of nowhere by themselves with sheep. You know what happens? You start to talk to the sheep. You name the sheep. You, you don't interact. You don't know the culture. You don't know the customs. You kind of, or you're nomadic. You don't, you don't really see a lot. And so when you come in, everybody's like, I don't like you because you're weird, because you're dirty, because you don't understand what's going on. So they become outcasts. So God says to the people of Israel, he says, all right, we get this. Ready? You're going to go to a foreign country. 
We don't possess any land. You're going to be hated because you're, you're Hebrews, and you're going to be hated because of your vocation. That's, that's three strikes. You're out. It sounds like a good plan, God. Well, how are we going to get there? Well, it's going to be an interesting story. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to have your brother be hated by, by, by you. You're going to sell him into slavery. He's going to go. He's going to become a servant. He's going to be falsely accused. He's going to be thrown in prison. He's going to rise to power. He's going to save the people of Egypt. He's going to save the people of Canaan. You're going to come down. And he's going to re- reunite with you. It's going to be great. It's a good plan, right? Everybody shake your head yes. It's a great plan. We would never have thought of it, but we're not God, right? Why is it a great plan, though? It's great because God, God brings the people down. He has, he has Joseph, who is, who is favored by Pharaoh. Not just sort of, but highly. Pharaoh's like, this dude, is he's the tops. He's, he's awesome. He is smart. He's cunning. He's got... He's got brains that go beyond anybody else that I've ever encountered. He puts it as second in command. He is, he is literally as powerful as Pharaoh is. Maybe even you could argue that he might be more powerful because everybody has to go to him just to live. He's got, he's got, some, he's got some status. Well, how does he have? He has this status only because of the journey he took. Now, God sends this this people into a foreign place without any possessions. They're hated by the Egyptians. They're hated by their, because of their jobs. And Joseph says, hey, tell them you're shepherds. They, they say, we're shepherds. This could go badly. Let's, let's, let's hypothetically think about something. Let's think about something hypothetical. Okay, just imagine this isn't how it went. Just imagine if the people, of, if, if Joseph's brothers came in and they said, yeah, we'll, we'll do whatever. And Pharaoh goes, okay, you can find houses wherever there's, you can buy whatever you want, buy a house and, and just start. The people of Israel, after 400 years, would have been completely gone. We live in a culture that, that, that prides itself, or used to pride itself, and it's confusing now, but used to pride itself on, on bringing all cultures together. We're the melting pot. <clears throat> when this country first was founded, <clears throat> probably not first when it was first founded, we weren't really great at first, but. Eventually, we got to the point where we're like, you know what? We want diversity. We want this difference. And it makes our country great. No country has ever done that before. When you moved into the land of Egypt, you became Egyptians, whether by, by looks or because you simply had to adjust into their culture or you're not going to survive. If Israel had come and moved into the middle of Egypt and been intermixed between the Egyptians, they would have been annihilated as a nation. They would have been absorbed into Egyptian culture. There wouldn't have been any Israelites left. But because they're not liked by the Egyptians, because their, 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 their job is abhorred by the Egyptians, they, Pharaoh, and, and because Pharaoh favored Joseph, he said, okay, you can have this land. I think one of the reasons why the people of Israel needed to go to the land of Egypt, because in the land of Canaan, they lived in the amount of space that their family took up. And to continue to grow means you need to have space. And in a land where your space is being 
is being invaded by other people's space, other growing family space, it becomes pretty much impossible to grow without, without blending with everybody around you. So God sends the people of Israel to the land of Egypt. He gives them the, to possess the land of Goshen, which is a great, a big area that is not inhabited by the Egyptians to, to grow freely from 70 men to 2 million. It's pretty awesome plan, I would say. It flies against every, every instinct that we have as people, but God has done pretty amazing things. We'll come back to this in a second, but I want to call your attention to what, jo- what Jacob does next. Joseph brings Jacob in front of Pharaoh. In two times in this short encounter, Jacob blesses Pharaoh. Jacob blesses Pharaoh, verse 7. Jacob blesses Pharaoh, verse 10. When Abraham is given his promise, God says, whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. I think this is an inaction of that. Pharaoh doesn't have to let Joseph's brothers live there. He doesn't have to. He's doing it out of kindness. He's blessing them. And so Jacob, in turn, blesses Pharaoh. And man, does that blessing pay off. Pharaoh is the most powerful man on earth before Jacob comes. It's pretty hard to imagine that Pharaoh could get more powerful. But look what happens in verses 13 and following. Verse 13. Now there was no food in all of the land, for the famine was very severe. This is, by the way, it's a, a literary marker for us to know that some new thing is being told to us. So that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the, far, of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. Jacob, or Joseph, now has all of the money. Imagine that for just a second. All of the money in all of the land of Egypt and all of the land of Canaan, which is essentially the known world at this point. All of the money is owned by Pharaoh. All the money. Let's let that sink in for just a second. It's not a 1% tax, it's a 100% tax. So that you might live. But it's not enough. All of the money is in Pharaoh's house. Verse 15. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. How do we buy food if we have no money? Well, J- Joseph has an answer because he is, he is smart. He's crafty. It says, Joseph answered, Give your livestock and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. We'll exchange grains for cattle. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for their horses, their flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. When that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, remember this is a seven-year famine, and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord, that our money is all spent. We're broke. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies 
in our lands. Everything besides the people and the land in Egypt and Canaan belonged to Pharaoh. Everything. Why should we die? Verse 19, why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Now notice, this is them saying this back to Joseph now, not Joseph saying, I'll buy you guys. He says, buy us. They say, buy us and our land for food, and we will and we and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh and give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them, and the land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy. For the priests had fixed allowances from Pharaoh, and they lived on the allowances that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not buy, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now, uh, here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. At the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own as seed for the field and as food for yourselves and your households and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have a fifth of the fifth, and the land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. So here's what Joseph essentially does. We look at this, and it says that, jo that, that Jacob, he blesses Pharaoh, and Pharaoh prospers monstrously. And we might think to ourselves as we read that first part, we might think, you know what, it's really unfair to the poor Egyptians that Pharaoh is going to get all But Joseph, he's smart. If, if Pharaoh owns everything just so that everybody can keep living and then, and then uses his power to oppress, the, the nation of Egypt will eventually crumble. If, 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 everything, if everybody is under servitude to the one person and they don't have anything, they literally don't have money, they don't have food, they don't have, they don't have livestock, they don't have land, they have nothing. If they have nothing, they can't survive. The, the culture will eventually crash and burn. So Joseph, using his brains given to him by God, he says, here's what we're going to do. You're gonna, we're going to give you seed for crop. And when you harvest that, you're going to give 20% to Pharaoh and you're going to keep 40%. This is brilliant. 40, or not 40, 80%, excuse me, four-fifths. You're going to keep 80% of your stuff. This gives incentive to keep working hard, to have a good yield, and to, and to do your best. And this is an agricultural society. 20% might sound high. 20% tax. Remember, Pharaoh owns everything. He owns everything. And he says, give me a 20% tax. If we compare this to Mesopotamia at the, at the time, uh, modern-day Iraq and Iran and Turkey, these places, in Babylon, for example, or what eventually becomes Babylon, the, the, the tax was 60%. If you even it out in the ancient Near East, which is Egypt to, to, to Babylon, it's about 45%. Egypt is one of the least taxed amongst a group of people who are completely and totally owned by Pharaoh. Joseph is smart. And Egypt prospers. 
Think about it. Egypt is one of the oldest civilizations on earth. They have survived so many things. And they've remained relatively in the same place. Now, they're not the world power they are. Uh, they were back then, today, but they're still there. It's pretty amazing. I'd venture to guess that might be might have something to do with Joseph. Actually, let me say it in a different way, because I think, I think we have to catch something. Because right in the next verse, it says, in verse 27, it says, Thus Israel. Now, I bring this up because if you pay attention to the to the structure, the literary structure of a text of Scripture, we get clues. If you look before this, Jacob, or Joseph, is plants his family in the land of Goshen. We talk about what's happening to the people of Israel. And then we have this strange little break where Jacob blesses Pharaoh. Pharaoh monstrously prospers. The people of Israel, Egypt monstrously prosper. And then we go back to, to Egypt. This is called a bookend, or Israel. We go back. It's called a bookend. When you have a story that encapsulates another story, and when we look at this, what, what do we see? I think we see something very interesting. Jacob's blessing of Pharaoh is, I think, the key. We have this story of, J of Joseph interacting with Pharaoh with his family. And at the conclusion of this interaction, Jacob blesses Pharaoh. And then what do we see? We see this monstrous stuff happening. Yes, because Joseph is very smart. He plays his cards right. But this is how most of the blessings of God are enacted in the world. God doesn't usually just give things blindly. He usually gives things blindly through people. And in this case, the blessing that Jacob gives to Pharaoh is dealt out through the hands of Joseph. It's because God blesses Egypt that Egypt prospers. I think that's pretty important. I think that's something that we can find as a principle in life, in, in general. Well, the blessings of this earth are because of God. The story doesn't end, though. It goes on just a little bit further here, right before we get to the blessings from Jacob to his sons in, verse, in chapter 48. Verse 27 says, thus, thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen. Now, by the way, there's two, two names there, Goshen and Ramesses. Uh, I, I believe Goshen is the later name that, would, that the people uh, that would be reading Genesis first, but uh, Moses and people, it was later called uh, Goshen and, and earlier called Ramses. It doesn't really matter, but that's why there's a discretion in the names. It's one way or the other. They settled in the land of Goshen, and they, they gained possession of it. They gained possessions in it, excuse me, and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. Seems like a really long life. His father Isaac lived to be 185, and his, his grandfather Abraham lived to be 175. So, so Jacob's he's a young man. 147. This is why he says my days were few. Few and evil because he had a hard life. And when the time when the time drew near that Israel must die, Jacob is renamed Israel. 
he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in, the, in their burying place. And he answered, I will, I, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself on, on the head of his bed. So there's two things, two really monstrously important things that are happening right here. First of all, we see the return. Jacob goes down to the land of Egypt, and, and God, before he gets there, he says, he says, it's okay to go down to Egypt because eventually I'll bring you back. The time in Egypt is purposeful and planned by God. And he says to Jacob, it's okay, I will bring your family back to the land of promise. This is Jacob trying to make sure that this happens. Jacob goes to Joseph. Now, Joseph is not the firstborn, technically the firstborn. He's the firstborn of Rachel. He's the favorite son of Jacob. He's also the most important son because he's the second in control over this great, humongous nation. So Jacob goes to Joseph and he says, You need to swear to me that you, who have the power to do this, will take me home. That's really important that we see that God's plan is to eventually bring them back. But something else happens here. Remember how I said that, that most anthropologists will look at, at the Egyptian cult, or the Israelite culture and they'll say, look, this, it's not possible to go from 70 to, to 2 million in, in just 400 years. Well, they, again, they don't take into account this last section here. In a place that was completely theirs, uninhibited by people around them, vying for the same land, God blesses Israel. They settle in Goshen. They gain possession in it. And they were fruitful and multiplied greatly. Not normally, but uniquely and specially. Why? This is now, we finally, 215 years later, we finally start to see the reality of, God, of God's promise to Abraham. You're going to have descendants. You're going to have lots of descendants. Now this is about... 150 years after Abraham actually dies, but nonetheless, actually plus 400 years. This is finally the promise being fulfilled, the promise that we started talking about all the way back, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. This is the descendant that will crush the head of the serpent. This is the promised blessing to the world from God to his people finally being seen. And sometimes I think we look at life and we look at it in a, very, in a very macro way, very minimal, very small. We have our eyes very fixated upon the situations of life. You know, there's a reason why we possess the Old Testament as we do. There's a reason why we possess the New Testament as we do. There's a reason why the church has thought it necessary to continue to talk about and to record the things that have happened through church history. Because as we look at the big picture and we look at what God has done, we learn to place our trust and our hope in those promises. I think many of us, we would fall short if we were in fact Abraham. But none of us are Abraham. Abraham had an immense faith to, to blindly trust the voice of God. 
We don't have to do that. God has shown himself again and again and again. He makes a promise to a man who is way too old to have children. And you know what happens? Israel will eventually return to the land of Canaan. They will take possession of it. And they will take possession of it as a group of people who is not just a family that is growing, but is a nation that relatively is very large. God's promises, His words, don't come back void. He's promised to be with His people. And His promises come into reality. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You. We thank You that You have worked in this world not necessarily quietly either. But you have shown yourself in big and powerful ways. You have, you have given us evidences and reasons to trust in your words and to trust in your promises. Those things have been kept and preserved and held and shown to us in the pages of Scripture. We see a story of, of Joseph as this very small piece that you have uh, laid out and the plan to bring about salvation for all mankind. But as we as we back up and we open our eyes a little bit wider, we see that this is just one small part in the grand scheme. That Joseph is simply the next piece in the puzzle that brings the blessing out of the land of Egypt. It brings the blessing from a people who would have been despised and rejected in their own in their in this foreign culture, but but rather you place them in a place that is their own so they can without, without hindrance grow to the nation that produce the blessing of the world. This plan has gone for a very long time with many different parts and pieces. Lord, we thank you that you have shown it to us. This gives us confidence to place our feet upon your strength. This gives us confidence to hold to the things that you have said to us. It gives us boldness and strength. Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that you sent him into this world to suffer and to die for us. Lord, as his blood has covered us and has reconciled us to you. We just pray that we would be changed and transformed so we can live out our lives resting in the truth of him. In his name.